Welcome everyone to the Developmentor Podcast, your source for interviews and content on careers in technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. For those new to the show, we have three goals. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles. We want to highlight the different paths people take in their careers. And most importantly, we want to help you find your path. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com. Today's guest is, wait for it, last week's guest, Gary Flake. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I encourage you to stop and go listen to that one first, as we're going to pick up, well, at least as best we can, where we left off. Gary, welcome back to the show, and thanks for agreeing to join me again. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, and Gary, I think, you know, in the last episode, if, if I recall, you know, our hero was on this path. We had gone through a number of aspects of your career, but we didn't really dig into a couple of things that I, I really wanted to cover, and I think our audience would be interested in. Thanks in no small part to my my poor planning on scheduling back-to-back <laughs> uh, meetings last yeah. year. Um, so I'd really like to start off with one or two questions about the past before we get into the here and now, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, and so not a lot of premise or, or at least lead-in for our listeners here. So this is perhaps a bit abrupt for them. But if, if they go back and listen to the last episode, you know, one of your stops along the way was this company you started called Clipboard. And I, I guess my setup for this is, you know, you had this good gig going at Microsoft. You, you had this awesome title of technical fellow, which uh, for those who don't know is pretty high up on the food chain. You were running this place called Live Labs, I believe. You gave a TED mm-hmm. Talk and yep. then you left to do a startup. What inspired that leap and how'd you go about it? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I wanna kind of set the stage a little bit uh, for what was going on in the world. So I believe I, I left Microsoft in 2009 and I took a couple of months between 2009 and going into the new year in 2010 to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. You know, it was an interesting time because 2008, the financial crash was fresh in everyone's mind. And, and to be brutally honest, there were a lot of things going on at Microsoft that, you know, it was it was climate of, okay, we've got to get back to basics. We're not going to make new investments. We're going to go with what we know and what we trust. And, you know, Steve Ballmer was the CEO at the time, and Steve's a great guy, but he would say, we have seven trains in the company. They're named Windows, Office, Xbox, Mobile, yada, yada. You've got to get on one train. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't get on the train, you're going to get run over. And, and so there was a real shift starting to emerge in the company around 2008. And while I did what I felt I could to help the company as best I could, at a certain point, I was hungry for, for, for doing something else. And I was also at that time approaching 40, I believe. Uh, no, I was actually, I was over 40, but I was in my early 40s and I'd never done a startup that I had run, you know, that I'd done myself. I'd consulted startups and I bought some startups uh, as an executive in companies, but I'd never found it and run, run my own. And so I was really hungry for that experience. And so when I left Microsoft, I started coding up a whole bunch of, different concepts. Uh, and they were all over the map. I think I, I started with like a list of 20 concepts. I narrowed it down to about three or four things that I actually coded up. Hmm. And one of them, as I showed it to people, a lot of the typical response I got was, wow, I would use that. And, hmm. I, and I really took the approach of trying to solve a problem that I had. 
and that's how Clipboard came to be. Wow. So, so you were actually gone, left and just working independently at that point. Is that right? Yeah. You know, when, whenever, when you're at a senior position and you leave, you almost feel like you owe it to have a certain set of conversations. And I had a lot of the conversations that you might expect, some of them with other big companies, some of them with universities. And at the end, the path that I, I really wanted was to do a startup. And that was the thing that kept pulling on me. And I also, I'll be honest, I thought if I don't do it now, I might not have the energy to do it in 10 years. As I scoped down what it was that I wanted to do, I also framed it in my mind that I wanted to be a concept that if I had to, soup to nuts, I could do everything. And, and also, I wanted it to be interesting. So I actually began and produced something of like a, an MVP all by myself. And, it, and it, it took a couple months. And I started showing it around to some people. And then I got a great reaction. And once I started trying to raise money in earnest, I think I started and closed my round in two weeks. You know, I was oversubscribed in two weeks. So oh, wow. fundraising went really, yeah, it went really well. And that was a you know, a good indicator. And the, and the investors that I had are all world-class people, and I was lucky to have them. Yeah, well, I mean, it probably speaks a lot to the, the career you had built already, right? And that you, you've, you you had a track record and, and kind of proof. But you also, had a working, you also had a working model, right? It sounds like. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> makes me wonder what you threw away <laughs> as, yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's uh, you know this whole problem. It's kind of funny. I, I I mean, Salesforce went on to to acquire Clipboard, and we had every intention of integrating it into their product line. It turned out that there were some things that I did on the security side that. You know, you know, it'd be interesting to see what someone like you thinks about it. But I was using third-party cookies and client local storage and basically some clever techniques to do what looked like, you know, cross-domain post as part of the mechanism for saving clips from around the web. Mm-hmm. And when they finally wrapped their head around what that those implications were, they ultimately decided from a security perspective that they did not want to integrate it into the Chatter product. They thought that that was just too big of a risk. So it was kind of you know funny that they bought Clipboard to integrate into Clipboard, and then after you know after a few months said you know we don't think we can go through with this. So we've actually had completed all the integration internally at Salesforce and had a working model, but it was during that security review that they decided to pull the plug on it. And so, you know, anyone who's actually, yeah, anyone who's been in big companies knows that this is not an uncommon story. This happens over and over again. And it's kind of, it's kind of unfortunate. And what is both frustrating and rewarding is that to this day, people reach out to me and say, you know what? Clipboard was the best of, of its class and nothing has really risen to kind of replace it. And so there's, there's a part of me that, you know, I'm both gratified that, you know, for the people who, who knew Clipboard and used it, they, they, they really did love it. But I'm, I'm saddened by the fact that no one actually picked up that vision and ran with it. And I, I wish someone had. Well, maybe one of our listeners will. <laughs> yeah. well, just to, for our own for our audience's sake, you know, what's the elevator pitch on Clipboard? I mean, I, I, I get from the name, but. Yeah, if you think about what the capabilities are of Pinterest and Evernote, you know, and around the 2010 timeframe, yeah. it combined many of the aspects of both. And so like Evernote, you could grab 
virtually anything from anywhere in any web page. Uh, however, we had a much, I, I think we had a much higher bar in terms of preserving the fidelity and the functionality of the clip. So to give you mm -hmm. some examples, if you were searching on Google, you could clip individual search results or the whole search page. If you were at Facebook, you could clip a single post. If you were uh, at Expedia making flights, you could, you could clip all the different pieces of your, of your travel arrangements. If you're shopping at Amazon, you could grab little product descriptions or just a photo, right? And so it, it, it had that aspect of like, like Pinterest does that I wanna you know, grab a photo or some other artifact from around the web. But with Clipboard, you could grab almost any way of slicing a page, you could grab it. And the thing that really resonated with people was that when you were grabbing a subsection of it, like that post from Facebook, what you would be saving would actually preserve the entire look and feel that it originally had, as well as it preserved the searchable text, all the hyperlinks would work, and most flash embeds would work as well. So you could, oh, wow. you could clip a video, you could clip a flash game, and so it was a, and that turned out to be really important because as people started organizing their clips, they use uh, visual recognition really to 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 quickly visually parse what's on the screen and jump to the one that they're looking at, and they can recognize the Facebook post from the Google search result if if that look and feel is preserved. And so we felt like that we kind of cracked the code a little bit when it came to clipping things, and it was that technology around how do you extract a portion of a web page in a manner that you can preserve all that fidelity and all that functionality, but at the same time still embed that clip among many other clips and not have them step on each other's toes from like a, a CSS perspective. Interesting. So, and if you look on YouTube, there's a, uh, a keynote at the Fluent Conference, I think around 2011 or something. And, and I gave a keynote around how, how our clipping technology worked. And so there were some interesting things that we, that we did as part of solving those problems. Yeah, that's really cool. We'll be sure to link up some of those in the show notes. And of course, for our younger listeners, we'll, we'll be sure to link up what Flash is too, because <laughs> thankfully that's a, a dead project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> kidding, yeah. kidding aside. Okay, so then, so you exit Clipboard, yeah. you're at Salesforce, but you, you end up on the search team, which I guess now I see the tie-in because you had this, part of this technology was of course making all that content. Oh yeah, you know, I had actually been part of the search leadership teams at both at Microsoft, Yahoo, and Overture. You know, I gotcha. think I'd mentioned to you guys last time that uh, I was uh, involved in acquiring AltaVista and all the web. And I, um, before even doing any of that, I was I partnered uh, in terms of doing some some R and D with Inkomi, which was you know a big search engine, circa yep. two thousand. And so yeah, I had a, I had actually, and I and I published a bunch of academic papers on search as well. Yeah. So then I'm, I'm curious, you know, what was that, you know, like, did you check the box that you set out to on the CEO side and on the startup side? I mean, yeah. what was that actual, like, hey, I'm going to, I'm running a, you know, like, how big did you guys get to? What was, what were kind of the key takeaways you took as? It was an incredibly fulfilling experience. And, you know, start to finish, it was about 18 months, which is a tremendously fast time, you know, time frame in, in order to cycle through that. I made, you know, just to cut to the, you know, to the conclusion there, some of your listeners might remember the so-called Series A crunch that happened around, I guess, around 2012 or something like that. And 
it was really clear at the time that the bar for doing a series A had risen dramatically. Part of the part of the reason why was that, believe it or not, the Facebook IPO fell flat. And so that soured a lot of VCs on social media and things that had a kind of like, like a like a community-based growth component. So the, you know, they started adding zeros to all the core metrics that were that they viewed as a requirement for doing a series A. So a lot of money dried up around that. So I had decided that an exit was the right thing for the investors, for the employees, for myself. And while we had the intention of leaving uh, Clipboard running, I, I thought it would be the right thing for the users as well. Now, along the way, it was tremendously rewarding because I, I, I got to do everything, every role imaginable. I, I mean, I did corporate development. I did a, an asset acquisition. I, I had did major partnerships. I did, uh, you know, and I, I wrote the first version of every piece of technology and sometimes the second and the third. I was the only designer for almost a year. So I did a lot of the design. I, you know, so I, I really got to, to stretch all those muscles. I even had to fix the plumbing in, the, in our office when you know, I had some construction experience. So I, yeah, I cleaned the toilets as well. So, because our office was in a converted garage in downtown Bellevue. And so it was, it was great to, to do all those things. And over the lifetime of the, of the product, you know, those 18 months, we sustained, I think it was like an average of, we had, I can't remember what the average was. It was somewhere, we were always within 20 to 40% month over month growth every month for 18 months in a row, which was tremendous. And so we exited with maybe around 150,000 users but millions of clips and the engagement and some of our metrics were, were really phenomenal because I remember working on products at Yahoo and Microsoft that had tagging, for example. And if you had some sort of entity that got tagged at the tune of around, you know, five or 10%, you were over the moon happy in terms of having that engagement level for that feature. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think, I, I think it was like 70% of our clips were tagged and maybe nearly 50% were, were shared. There was a lot of validation in terms of how the product was used. And some of the partnerships we did were really kind of fun and interesting. We, had a, um, we appeared in a major commercial alongside Microsoft. They were showing off like a new version of Internet Explorer back when Internet Explorer was a thing. And you know, the clipboard icon and the clipboard app were one of the things that they showed in this commercial. So, you know, friends and family would say, hey, I saw you during the Olympics or something like that. And then we also had a partnership with Google at the very end that we pulled the plug on when Salesforce acquired us. And what that partnership was going to be was we were going to be in their one of their very first partners for, you know, the new sort of desktop web app capability that they were making available in, in, in Chrome at that time. Oh, and we also, uh, Time Magazine listed us as uh, one of the 50 best mobile apps of the year. You know, so we, we won awards. It was, so it was great. I mean, awesome. and, and I have no right to complain about anything. You know, it was, it was a great startup experience. Yeah. Just for our listeners, that's not the typical startup experience. No, I can, no, I can no, tell you. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm trying to figure out a clippy joke with the Microsoft tie-in. Oh, I know. I, I just can't it. do it. Yeah, I'm sure you have. No, no, so. no, it's, 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 I, I heard it all. I, I couldn't, it. I couldn't resist. We had uh, a beautiful, we had a beautiful logo. We had a beautiful logo that looked kind of like a heart, but stylized a little bit to look like a clipboard as well, or, or I mean a paper clip. So it, uh, there you go. <laughs> the kindly, 
kinder, gentler version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Gary, that's probably a trend, a good transition into the, the next question, which is a little bit more of a meta question around, you know, like I love when I have leaders on the show because they often can provide this insight to people who are coming in new to the, yeah. the field, you know, dig in with me on like, what do you look for when you're hiring and, and what do you look for in building teams? You know, like how, what's, what's your approach there? Yeah, so let, let me actually start with the second part first, talk about the teams and then the individuals. One of the things that I've always sought to do is to find a collection of people that are similar enough collectively that there are viable communication paths between different individuals. And it doesn't mean that everyone can talk to everyone on the team or have a productive conversation with everyone on the team. But it does mean that everyone has at least some minimum number of people that they can have a productive collaboration or a productive conversation with. And the reason why I mention that is because the teams that I've, I've led and, the, and the, the teams that I think I've, I've actually that have done the best work with have been very multidisciplinary, that they've you know, included designers and research scientists and product managers and IT people and lawyers. So across the whole spectrum, all sorts of uh, different, different skill sets. So that's one requirement that you, know, you have to have, you don't want to have someone that's going to be an island unto themselves, nor do you want a sub team that's going to be an island unto itself. So then the second trait that I look for in building out a team is that they have to be different enough to complement one, one another, to have complementary skills. And so in the context of when I was running Live Labs, this meant that, yes, we had applied research teams that were collaborating with MSR, Microsoft Research, but also working closely with product groups. And so we would seek to hire for the sort of in-betweeners that like to, to be in that world. We also had engineers that were doing rapid prototyping and, and kind of like a skunks work setting. And so these are people that like to cycle through lots of projects. They tend to like things, they almost have like a, a ADD because they want to, you know, they want to work on something, but they don't want to work on it for years, right? They'd like mm. to get closure, some sense of closure every, every couple of months. And then there are people that actually like the commitment of working multiple years on a project. So we'd have larger incubations. And then coming across all those different time scales, we had different disciplines that range from back-end people to front-end people to, you know, client code people to designers. We'd have interaction designers and, and visual designers and information architects. And so, you know, you have to have the full spectrum of different skill sets in order to make everything kind of come together. So that's, that's about team composition. And even when I did my startup, you know, initially... I think when we when we were bought, we only had like eight employees or something like that. Mm. But even among the developers that I hired, there was some similarity and differences. They were they were close enough that they can communicate, but different enough that they could complement and add value to one another. So one of my engineers was really uh, multifaceted in terms of like loving to do things that were more DevOps oriented, more framework oriented. And he would work really hard on, on things that kind of fell in the boundaries like that. Another one loved, loved, loved doing uh, client code stuff. Another one wanted to do backend stuff, you know, so you, you kind of 
you know, I look for that same pattern even when it's a small team. Yeah. As for the individuals, now there's, you know, obviously, you know, you want someone who's excellent in the domain that you're hiring to, but you know, let me tell you some things that may not be so obvious. I I think chemistry is really important. And one aspect of chemistry is both a little bit around emotional maturity, but also around communication style. You know, it's I've had people that work for me that, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, they tend to break a lot of glass. Every issue is kind of like a hill to die on. And that's that's really hard to, you know, work with over a long period of time. And while I've I've um, there's been some really talented people along my career that I think kind of you know, fit that pattern. And, and truth be told, I think earlier in my career, I, I may have been more like that than not. It's something that can be toxic to a team and you have to either have the confidence that that can, that can be worked out over time or they don't have to begin with. So communication. The second thing that I look for is really, let's just call them the virtues. Someone who has both a really strong work ethic and is extremely high integrity. And one aspect of integrity that I think is really important is a willingness to share credit and even not just share it, but an eagerness to give credit where credit is due. The thing that I actually really hate that feeds into this whole team toxicity thing is that sometimes you can have dynamics within a team where people view credit and success as zero sum. In order for them to be, you know, see themselves as successful, someone else has to lose. And yeah. that's the sort of person that I will kick out of my org as fast as possible. And mm-hmm. it's the sort of thing that you've really got to watch out for because it is oftentimes the seed for much worse things. So those integrity traits I'm looking for are really about honesty and a work ethic, and a willingness to share credit and collaborate. The final thing that, again, is independent of disciplines, I really like, and you can't always have this, because it's not a skill that people know how to cultivate, really, but I love systems thinkers. And what I mean by that is oftentimes people become entrenched in their own little narrow domain, but the person who oftentimes pops their head above takes a view of the landscape around them and sees how things interconnect and wants to make things connect better from what they learn from that, that visibility. Um, that's always going to be uh, a, a plus for me as well. So yeah. those, those three things. That's fantastic. I mean, you know, it's funny is like, other than the last piece, you know, again, for our listeners, uh, it's sometimes a broken record, but, you know, almost all those things are, are soft skills. Many of them are learnable. Um, yeah. You know, even the work ethic and integrity side of it is like, I think sometimes we have this notion that it's, you're, it's inborn, but it's not. You, you, can, yeah. you can choose how you react. I love the, the credit piece. I often try to formulate this in my head, and I don't know if it resonates with you or not, but like ownership, not authorship. Right. In other words, like yeah. you, you should own it, but you don't care whether anybody knows you're the author. Yeah. You don't have to like literally put your thumbprint on everything. You know, and it's just like, you know, if you think about like raising a kid, I know not all your listeners have, have kids, but your kid's success has to be their success. And obviously you're going to be doing a lot to build them up but it really has to be their success and they get the, the credit. And, and so, you know, if you're leading a team, 
really making it so people can, you know, they can view their own personal success as being consistent with the team success. That's, that's really the gold standard that you're oh, shooting for. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Hey, and I want to add one more thing. Um, yep. And because you alluded to it and you, you, you mentioned about soft skills can be learned and these things are learnable. Another thing that I always look for is evidence that the person is always a work in progress and always seeking to improve themselves. There are lots of people that, you know, when they get to a certain point, they lock in. They lock in on everything that they, uh, you know, sometimes they lock in on their values, on their skills, what they think is important. And I, I'm always looking for someone who is constantly reevaluating some of their assumptions and looking to learn and grow. And in that vein, I will always have a tendency to pick the person that is maybe doesn't have the specific skills that I want, but has demonstrated an ability to learn new skills over the person who's just the domain expert, but is kind of rigid, number one. Number two, I have a high tolerance for mistakes. And I think that sometimes in the, in the best organizations that are doing the best work, mistakes inevitably happen and they're part of the process. And how people handle mistakes, both individually and collectively, contributes a lot to how they can grow as people and how teams can, can evolve over time. Yeah, so true. I mean, there's so many things in there. I mean, I'll go back just a little bit because the, the self-esteem bit that you were talking about, it, it, I always get a chuckle out of the modern thinking there because the, the phrase itself literally has the key into, in it, which you hit on, which is the word self-esteem. Mm -hmm. Like it, it comes from within. It comes from you, like, you know, like realizing you're capable of doing things. And then yeah feed in and I love these later thoughts around, you know, kind of belief systems and lock getting locked in. I know it's an area I've struggled with at, at times. And there's this great, I don't know if you've ever read Raptitude. It's a great I blog. Um, and I, I remember reading this one quote and I just pulled it up here because I think it, it, this is one of these that hit me over the head along the lines of what you're talking about. I won't read the whole thing, but we'll link it up. But, but it starts with simply the, the author writes, beliefs are nothing to be proud of. Believing something is not an accomplishment. I grew up thinking that beliefs are something to be proud of, but they really are nothing but opinions one refuses to reconsider. That's awesome. Beliefs are easy. The stronger your beliefs are, the less open you are to growth and wisdom. And I'll just that's leave it awesome. at that. We'll link it up. I mean, like I remember reading that and, you know, it's, it, at first it was like, okay, that's a little glib or whatever. And then I'm just like, you know what? It, it just hit me over the head. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And I think it dovetails with nicely to, to put a bow on, on some of those thoughts that, that you just shared, which I think are so important. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. Gary, let's transition a little bit because I mean, there's this next phase, as you said, you, you're, you've done kind of three phases, if you will. You know, you mm -hmm. did your academic phase, you did your quote unquote corporate phase, including startups in there. And then, you know, these days, uh, I believe your LinkedIn profile says independent inventor, investor, and advisor. That's, that's the dream in many ways, I think for at least <laughs> some of us in tech. So what does that mean for you? So I, I won't lie, I, I, I kind of am living my best life right now. <laughs> so it's a, a knock on wood. I've, you know, I've been very fortunate. And while a lot of people still contact me and say, when are you getting back in the game? I, I keep saying, no, I'm, I'm doing what I was meant to do. I have no intention of going back into, into the game, as they say. 
And part of the reason why is I, I find what I'm doing right now the most fulfilling work of my life, really. And in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm living life much more in the slow lane as I have compared to in the past. And this gives me a lot more opportunity to focus on quality, whether it's quality relationships or quality thoughts or quality research. You know, it, it doesn't have to be motivated by any other factor. And that's, that's really nice. You know, I, that's, that's, that's important to me. Yeah. So you mentioned you're doing some of your best work. Is that something you, you feel comfortable sharing? You know, I know we've talked uh, offline a little bit here. I'm just, yeah, you know, I can, I can talk a little bit about it. I want to preface it by saying, sorry if this sounds like vaporware, but if any of this sounds like vaporware, but part of the promise to myself and being in this phase that I'm in is that I'm going to do things on my own terms. You know, there's, I'm not going to have artificial timelines, not going to have artificial constraints around, you know, requirements or whatever. And so I focus on three categories of work things right now. The one that's most obvious and we can kind of quickly lay it out and describe it is the advising and investing work that I do with other companies. And so I work with, I I should keep a a better count of this, but I think it's around 15 companies right now. And they vary from billion plus valuations to no valuation. Um, They're all over the map. And I, you know, it's a variety of work from advising to board work to, or just investing. And the type of work that I do is all over the map. I mentor a lot of CTOs. I work with other companies on their core strategies. I often serve as sort of a domain expert for certain things around machine learning and data science. So I get into the technical weeds for some of them. And so, you know, that's a way of keeping me relevant and keep making sure that I don't lose track of what's going on in the rest of the world. And it's also, to be perfectly blown away, of giving back a little bit. You know, my dance card is full right now, but I think that it, there's almost an obligation for people who've been, who the industry has given a lot to, like myself, to, to be able to give back and help mentor people and, and mentor companies along their own path. And so, you know, over my career, I've, I know I've mentored over 100 people. Uh, so this feels like an, uh, like an obvious an important thing to continue doing. So that's that's a big part of it. The other two things are purely selfish and self-directed. One is a book that I've actually been working on and off for almost 10 years, you know, no, over 10 years, but it's really kind of picked up steam over, over the past year. And it's a book that I'm tentatively titled Natural Synthesis. And it's a successor to my first book. It aspires to be kind of like a a generalized theory of emergence and well kind of like a computational theory of everything so it's tackling a lot of things that are some of it scientific some of it mathematical some of it believe it or not sociological and related to evolutionary psychology and you know i have a really dense chapter on the you know the past two millennia of world beliefs and philosophies and it's a very broad book that you can't really rush and so that's uh, been taking up a lot of my time right now in, in a joyful way. So I'm, I've been focusing on that a lot. The other project is purely technical project. It's called, it's a programming language compiler runtime that I call X2C, X2C. 
I know everyone's going to laugh at the at the drug reference there. That's not my intention. But the reason why I call it ecstasy is, well, I was struggling to give it a name. I started calling my files .x files because I, they didn't have a name. And I cross-compiled to C. Hmm. And what I'm aspiring to do with ecstasy is to empower certain types of programming idioms that are common in languages like Python, JavaScript, and Lisp, but compile statically. And so giving you the best of both worlds, the flexibility that you might find in a dynamic language, but the speed of a, of a compiled language. And so nominally, some people might say, ah, oh, well, you're, what you're doing is kind of in the crosshairs of Go or Rust or you know, or D or, or any other would be successor to C. I'm not trying to compete with any of them. I think they all have their place. I'm trying to make the language that I want to program in over the next 10 or 20 years. And, you know, over the years as almost like a, like a ridiculous side project, I've, I've, I've written a couple of different interpreters. This is my first real true compiler. I've written a byte compiler back in grad school, but this is, this is my first real true compiler. And the language, I think, has some properties that make it pretty awesome. I mean, it's of course, I'm, you know, no one thinks their own baby is ugly. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think ecstasy has a lot to offer. And it's in a really, it's in a fun spot right now because it's fully bootstrapped. And the source code actually gets smaller over time, factoring, you know, excluding when you add new features. That's, you know, you can't get necessarily yeah. smaller. But it tends to get smaller over time because the language, now that more of it is getting converted into itself, the language is more expressive than C. And so lots of things that are hard to do in C are trivial to do in X C. And so those are the, the three sets of activities. Wow. That is, that is amazing. And, uh, you know, as I think I said in the the last episode, uh, you know, Gary, you're not somebody to just do the light stuff, right? Like a theory of everything is okay. And then let's add in a, a writing a language from scratch. And then, of course, the advisory side uh, is, is so important too. And I imagine, you know, like all of these, it's super interesting, right? Because they each bring a different kind of joy, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Right? Which that's that's really special to to be in a place in your career where you can do that because i think you know that's what many of us work towards is that you know at the end of the day that independence right i yeah. think i think is is what a lot of us strive for we could probably do a whole episode on just that for people yeah. but um i, I think i, I want to wrap that up and and put a bow on it because uh, there's I don't think a lot more to add. I mean, I know there's a lot more we could dig in on all of these topics, but you did such a great job on the, the past. And then there's this nice tie-in to the, the current phase. I'm wondering then if you could reflect a little bit back on if people want to go through this path, right? Like what's your best advice? Kind of what's that guiding uh, light for you? That's pretty open-ended. And so I'll, I'll interpret it the way I want to interpret it. Awesome. <laughs> You know, I sometimes go back to advice that my father gave me over the years and some of the things that I learned from having come from a from a very blue collar background. You know, I, I, I grew up in a, you know, working in, a, in the family sheet metal shop. And so, you know, I got a work ethic that largely came from that. I was also a wrestler. And from wrestling, I learned 
a lot of times you have to just stand on your own when you're a wrestler and you walk out on the mat by yourself. There's, you know, yes, you trained with the team and your coaches in your corner, but you live and die on the mat by your own actions. There's a sense of also with wrestling of, you know, it's only six minutes long, but it, it can feel like a marathon in terms of the amount of energy that you're expending over that, that period of time. And the, and the training required can be very daunting. And so I, I often kind of think back to like very basic things. Like I think that it's possible within each of us individually to view ourselves as not just a work in progress, but as something that can evolve in its own right and can improve. And so I, I look at abstract skills that I either that I don't have and I wish to have, and that might be, can I become technically deeper in this area? What does it take to to do that? And and so, I do believe that not only have I picked up more skills over the years, but there's something, um, there's a second order effect that when you try to take on lots of different skill sets you actually can get better at the process of learning itself. Similarly, when you challenge yourself in terms of different work environments and in different career tracks, you have to be very flexible and adaptive in terms of the choices that you make because there's going to be both threats and opportunities and your own innate strengths and weaknesses and you have to get all these things to kind of line up in order to make progress. And so some of the basic things that I would try to cultivate in myself would be almost like, you know, here's something like a sense of endurance, right? Whatever it is that you're working on, whether it's a big project like a book or trying to help a team get over the finish line for some sort of product release, whatever those are, there's a sense of wanting to get to that end goal. And there are strategies for mental strategies for how do you not drive yourself crazy trying to get to the goal? How are you able to kind of take some measure of uh, benefit from the journey itself, right? And so a lot of what I've done over the years is try to learn how to learn and be very thoughtful and intentional about, about what it is that I want to get better at. If you take a path like that, that means, you know, there's some things that you can tease out of this. One, you have to be willing to sample a lot of different things. And so one thing that I did in my career kind of late, but I did it in rapid succession when I, when I did start doing it, all throughout my 20s, I was a one-trick pony. I was just a research scientist. But when I hit my 30s, I started doing lots of other things, taking on lots of other roles within companies. And so for me, that was eye-opening to be able to sample from the career tracks of lots of different disciplines and different parts of the hierarchy. And from that experience, and, I, and to be clear, I wasn't good at everything. I was not even good at most things. But what I found was that there were some things that I was surprised, that I surprised myself at being good at. And so then this has become something that I can invest in and grow more in that direction. And so just being really thoughtful about how you invest in yourself over time is, I think, one of the biggest secrets to success is to yeah. invest in your own success. That's, yeah, great advice. I mean, I think so many things in there. I think 
I did the same thing in my twenties. I worked, I had this good fortune of working at a place that did a lot of different things and Mm -hmm. a boss that supported me trying that. And Mm then, so a lot of my advice to, to folks as well is get as exposed to as many ideas as you can in your, early on right and this is one of the beauties of why you go to silicon valley if you're in tech it's not even like the opportunity to get rich or be in a that startup that has unicorn growth it's the exposure to ideas it's like very few places on earth yeah and you know one you know one thing i'll i'll add that kind of fits into this this whole theme of investing in yourself and 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 really kind of uh growing over the course of a career you know, there are different skills required at different stages of the typical career ladders. You know, you on the one end, you start off as an individual contributor. You might then turn into a lead and then a more junior but disciplined focused manager and then maybe a bigger manager and then a manager of managers and then a multidisciplinary manager and then maybe an executive. And what's really interesting is that all of those different roles require different skills. And it might be that you're not so good at something in the middle. And the lesson that a lot of people take is that if they're not good, if one of the middle roles doesn't really work well for them, they're not that great at it, it doesn't resonate, they feel that that might be like a brick wall and they've peaked. Their career isn't going to go any further. I myself feel like I excel on the endpoints, I'm really good as an individual contributor. I'm really good as an executive. The inner ones, the inner roles, where you know, I think I think one of the hardest jobs in the world is managing, you know, like twelve to fifteen people. I mean, that's just such an insanely hard job. And I think I don't actually have the skills to do it as well as other people that I've known. And so, knowing that 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 didn't necessarily have to be the end of my career allowed me to continue growing my career, but investing in other people that could complement my weaknesses with their own strengths. That's another way of kind of another lens in which to view all of this. Yeah, that's a great framing. I think, you know, Gary, that's, that's a great point to then wrap up on because I think we're, we're hitting on at the, the top of the hour here in terms of our time together. And so just one yeah. final question, which is, you know, where can our listeners best learn from you, follow you, like take ecstasy <laughs> with you? I, guess. <laughs> uh, so I got a word yet. One of my uh, selfish indulgences is obscurity. Nice. You know, when I was when I was in the game, as we said before, I used to get over a hundred emails a day, and I don't mean mailing list or things that I was BCC'd on that I could ignore. I mean mail emails directed to me a hundred a day, and so when I entered in this phase, I intentionally obscured my profile on the web a little bit more. And in fact, you know, I own the domain flake.org, but if you go to flake.org, it just says yo. And the reason why is when I announced that I was leaving uh, Salesforce, you know, uh, people came out of the woodwork contacting me and it was kind of overwhelming. But that said, I'm, you know, I I do occasionally answer emails. I'm Gary at Flake.org. I'm Flakenstein on Twitter. I'm more of a lurker on Twitter than anything else because I have a sick fascination with U.S. politics. And so I spend most of my time just, you know, I jokingly tell people I had to retire so that I could follow U.S. politics more focused. 
in most cases. <laughs> but that's not quite true. Hopefully and, not, because here you, you said you were living your best life, and then <laughs> I am. If I could, if I could just uninstall Twitter, I think I'd be in heaven. But I, I can't. I, I did actually suspend my Facebook account, but uh, on GitHub, I'm GWF, and I'm also nice. GWF on uh, Hacker News. Um, I, I mean, I'm not incredibly active on those sites, but I do. I do visit them daily, but I, I, I tend to be a little bit more of a lyrical just because I think the gift that I gave myself when I retired was I was going to seek to have a lifestyle that required me to do as small amount of email as possible because a massive inbox was my least favorite part about being in the game. And so... Nice. Yeah. I aim for that now. <laughs> it's tough, man. It's uh, tough. For sure. It's like a fire hose. Yeah. Gary, uh, yeah. thank you so much for, for joining me again today and, and kind of putting the bookend on part one here. I really appreciate you coming back. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. And, and thank you, of course, to our listeners for taking the time to listen. This is my first time actually doing a two-parter, so I'd be curious to have your feedback. As always, if you like the show, we'd, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can, of course, always visit us at developmentor.com to hear those older episodes or even part one of this episode with Gary, as well as, of course, find other content on careers in tech. Most importantly, we'd really appreciate it if that if you like the show, please tell your friends, share it. Even if you are a lurker, come out of lurking that one time and share the, the episode. Referrals are, of course, what, what drive interest, drive subscriptions, all of the things that matter for us as podcasters. So if you have any feedback, please drop us an email, podcast at developmentor.com. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move that one step closer to finding your path.